0: Bible with you tonight, please turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1. It's almost a, a rite of passage in some way for Americans of Italian descent to like the Godfather movies. I don't know if they're great movies, but it's cultural. You know, I have a sweatshirt that says Corleone on it. Because of Don Vito Corleone, the Godfather himself. I have a T shirt with a red rose on it that says know, Padrino, which is the Godfather. I have another T shirt that I don't wear in this church, that's why you never see it. I have another t another T shirt that represents the five families. Corleone, Tattaglia, Barzini, Cuneo, and Stroxi. All right. Don Vito um, really was a godfather to many. The movie is about family. You don't go against the family. If there was a really earthy way, a really earthy way to explain what I think the essence of what the letter to the Philippians is all about, it could be summed up in the word family. Tight family. This is what we are. Comparing life to the church, uh, comparing life in the church to being in the mob is maybe not very, you know, uh, complimentary, but it, it has some comparisons. is not that far off the mark. But Paul's partnership with the church in Philippi was tight. And that relationship is more the occasion for this letter than any significant theological issue, really. Philippians is somewhat like 2 Timothy in the sense that the possibility of death looms large over Paul. As he writes, he's in Rome. It's about A.D. 62 when this letter was written. We can gather from 2 verses 20 through 26 that his life was literally at stake as he was writing. He's waiting for the verdict of the imperial court on him. And the prospect of his own death, his own mortality, is enough to make Paul write a letter to this congregation that he cares so much for because they've been so close to him in his ongoing work for the gospel. Philippians, is a, it, it, these are the things he wants these people to know and to remember and to have and to not forget, not compromise on? How might we as Christians say our final farewell to our own people if we knew that we were near death? What would be important? What about coming to the end of our lives and having the relational matters be the priority rather than the financial matters, as it was the case for Paul? That's part of the theme of this letter, beloved. What would we as Christians have to say to each other At the end, as a family created specifically to be engaged in a conflict for the souls of people. The fellowship we have with one another has to go beyond mere affection for one another. To Christ-like affection for one another. That overflows in knowledge and discernment, as the text says, so that we're productive for the sake of the gospel not just for ourselves. Let me pray. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Father, watch over all who hear that we may believe together your perfect and gracious word in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, slaves to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll bear with me for just a few minutes, uh, it would help us quite a bit in order to get a sense of why Paul has written this letter if we were to recall the events of Acts chapter 16. Paul had it received, if you remember, if you know the flow of Acts well at all or have studied it. Paul had received his Macedonian call during his second missionary journey while he was in Troas, which is what led to his ministry in the city of Philippi. Specifically, Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 34, recount for us the conversion of this upper class woman, a seller of purple goods, which is very, you know, posh at that time, a woman named Lydia, then a slave girl, an encounter with a slave girl who was demon-possessed and being used for the financial gain of others, and then with a working-class Roman jailer and his whole household, by extension. This extremely diverse group brought together under the banner of Jesus is the core group that made up the beginning of the church congregations in Philippi. But we also learn that Philippi, the city where they had landed and stayed for some days, Paul says in 1612, was really the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. It was uh, colonized for the sake of Rome. Paul and his missionary team started among a base of pious women who were already there, praying every Sabbath, meeting there on the riverside. To uh, he, they they spoke to them there. Lydia worshipped God, and they built on that. Right, no need to reinvent the wheel. If it's there, start where it is. Right, but Philippi was also filled, like most of the colonies in the Roman Empire, with paganism. So on their way to prayer sometime later, they're met by a girl who has, the text says, a spirit of divination. She's very profitable for her masters because this is actually demon possession. And the demon or the demons in her give her information that helps make the masters money. And so she's used by them in verse 17 of Acts 16. Paul and his companions end up getting beaten and thrown in prison for their encounter with her. And then their jailer is saved, and his whole household, when God frees Paul and Silas in the night, if you remember. So Paul met with the upper class, the lower class, and the middle class to plant a church in Philippi. The point being, the church in Philippi was not made up of people that had all kinds of things in common, at least not initially. It wasn't an affinity group where they were already friends, they already knew each other, they already went in the same social circles. They did not. Not even close. Today, many churches in the West in general are started for that reason specifically. Right? On the opposite side of the spectrum. So that people who are already friends, already have so much in common, would also have a church that they all went to. It's not a terrible idea. It's not really a sinful idea. It's just not necessarily a biblical pattern of planting a church or why you would plant a church either now if that's all you have somewhere that's one thing right if everybody does know each other and everybody does have everything in common in the plan a church it's not like you you did something wrong or didn't do it the bible way it's just that's not usually the case especially in communities today how diverse is moundsville racially not really but but culturally the values of people you have a one block that has basically the same values and um you know Likes and things they love and all that, but there are different, you know, little pockets of different types of culture and values, even in a little place like Moundsville or in Moundsville or in the Ohio Valley. What if the only thing that brings you together and holds you together is the gospel in which you believe? Can a church like that thrive? Right? And there were some circumstantial reasons relative to the city of Philippi specifically that also help explain why Paul wrote this letter to give this group a very proper and formal goodbye. At the least, Paul's situation is uncertain here. And he wants to be prepared. He's writing things that he might want people to know in case he can't say them anymore. We, we know from the events in Acts 16 that there began and remained a very close partnership between Paul and the church in Philippi. By the time Paul wrote this letter, this church has been in existence for about Ten years. And in a colony that was deeply embedded in Roman culture, like Philippi, a long-lasting partnership meant something. These kind of partnerships were really the lifeblood of the people's lives in the city, in the colony. People took these relationships and partnerships extremely seriously. It really was like a family. They, um, Thinking of the Godfather, right? They, They called the Fordham section in the Bronx... And that little part of New York City, Little Italy, because it's, it's like Italy away from Italy. And it has its own culture and its own, you know, way of life and understanding things. And Philippi was truly a Rome away from Rome at this time. Like little Italy is Italy away from Italy. It's amazing how a place's history will shape its culture and its values for even centuries to come. Some 104 years before this letter, In 42 B.C., a very significant sea battle, naval battle, takes place off the coast of this area. The forces of Octavius and Antony defeat the Republican forces of Brutus and Cassius. And so two major battles that took place over the space of less than one month really decided the fate of the Roman Empire in this region. So after these great battles were over, many of the soldiers who fought in these battles and their families retired in this region. They brought all that roman that culture, that those values with them and settled in this area, retired there. Philippi joined other Roman colonies who operated with special status under Roman law. You had all these Romes away from Rome all over the empire. The Roman people who settled here had a deep sense of connection with Rome. The writer and philosopher Seneca tells us that this is very interesting. That those who were considered the worst in Roman society, because Roman Roman society is not known for its morality, right? It's not known for how uh, upstanding or conservative it was. It, it's it's not known for that. It's known for the opposite. But so, who did Romans consider to be the scumbags? People who didn't care about their social obligations. People who didn't take care of their duty to maintain all these connections. They weren't loyal to the family. They didn't live by them. They didn't respect them. That's why I bring up the Godfather because that's more or less how Philippi operated. You have an obligation to the family. You have an obligation to this culture and to its values. And if you step out of that, society will consider you garbage. Like who goes against their family? Right? You would have very powerful family groups that dominated the landscape in these places. Just listen. Just like in many churches today. Think about it. Most churches that you know of, they're actually led by certain families. More than they are by the pastor or the elders if they have that. And so, if you're on their good side in a church, you can flourish. But if you're not, you won't last very long. And and I'm not... Every church I know is like this. There, there are certain families that really run the church. And so um, this is very common. You'll hear about that. You know, We all have stories of friends that we have in other churches or pastors that we know. or These are the stories. You, you can't get around this family. If you want to do anything in the church, you're going to have to deal with this family or that family or these families that have formed a group. And they're the ones that hold the line and preserve the church and make sure that it remains faithful, allegedly. Right? All these things. To converts like Lydia and the jailer, Paul was a part of the fabric of their very lives because of their partnership, because they were together in this. And it isn't that this church in Philippi has abandoned all these things. The, the, the gospel centrality, the gospel fellowship, which is what we're going to talk about in, a, in a, the main thing we're talking about here tonight. If they had abandoned the gospel, if they had abandoned Christ, Paul's letter would reflect that. We don't really see that. Paul does not want the Philippian church to forget why it exists, what holds it together, what matters, why does its fellowship matter, why must it maintain itself. Because the cultural reasons in Philippi for a group to maintain itself are not the gospel's reasons for a group to maintain itself and not compromise. And so Paul is basically writing a letter that is saying, listen, don't let your shared identity as Romans and the values of the empire and the values of Philippi. Don't let those be what holds you together, what maintains your fellowship. Don't let those things become the reason why you exist and why you have to keep existing, because as good as they may be for a community, they're antithetical to the gospel." What sense of relational responsibility do we have toward others in our church today? Or do we even think in terms like that, that I have an obligation to the people in my church? It's not just an obligation to keep away from bad doctrine. It's a relational obligation that we don't hurt each other and do each other wrong. And put burdens on each other that we shouldn't be putting on each other. And treat others in ways that we shouldn't be treating each other. We have an obligation to not let our church become that. What is the nature of this bond we have together? How much of a sense of commitment does the average Christian have today? Towards other Christians, especially those in their own church. Why does it matter to each one of us if we're committed enough to one another? What's it all for? What's this all for? Is it, again, is it for keeping the lights on and the traditions of the past and the names? Is it for keeping all that going and remembered? Is that why we exist? The Bible, namely Jesus, describes us as a family. Those are the terms Jesus uses. Mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers. Maybe we would do well to take these next several weeks in Philippians and consider the means of our common bond together. To the extent that we think we are holding this together, we are going against scripture. I promise you, we don't, we don't keep the lights on and the church open and things going each week. We're not doing that. We're the means by which God does that. And we are expendable. So by the time in the time we're given here, our priorities are not our own. They're for others. Right? We know from verse one that Paul, along with his partner in ministry, Timothy, whom I think he was going to send there at, at some point, he's he's writing to an established church body that has a structure. Again, it's about ten years old here. The bishops and deacons are already installed. So it's not like what he wrote to Titus in Crete. You've got to get elders installed in the churches there. They're already installed in Philippi. They're already working there. I'm, I'm going to stress that every time we see it because the Scripture calls the church to have elders and deacons, both. And it's dysfunctional and won't be healthy until it has both. Bishops and deacons are necessary for the life and health of a church. The bishops, of course, that's the same Greek word. You have presbyteros, episkopos, uh, these all basically some translations are going to use the word bishop some are going to use the word elder some even use the word presbyter they're all basically describing the same thing the bishop's a qualified group of elders plural group um, who shepherd the church lead the church give oversight and then the deacons who are a plural group of servants who support the elders by serving the physical needs of the church and i know i i, I know it's hard to make major changes like that and i I've talked about it a lot, and I I, I have reasons right now for for kind of pushing that out a little bit. I understand that, you know, I I think that's where we need to be right now. I just, I want it to stay on the radar that eventually we're going to have to deal with that. I don't say that like it's such a negative thing. It's not. It would be a wonderful thing as long as we do it rightly and for the right reasons and make sure we have the right men in the office. That would be the most important thing. The only thing worse than having no elders is having the wrong elders. That will kill the church in a very short amount of time. It's a very serious thing. And I know it's hard to make major changes. Right? I know it's hard to make major changes. But sometimes, sometimes, the reason it's so hard to make major changes in a church is why the changes have to be made. The power structures of families or friends or certain groups that tend to hold the authority or sway in a church Tend to not want to give that up. And listen, it's not always malicious. Okay. When I say that, don't let me paint any person or group trying to hang on to the church's past as evil. That's not categorically evil or bad. Okay. Because a lot of times, change also means liberalism, and you lose the past, and and you go the wrong road. And so, so I'm not even talking about that. What I'm saying is, is that sometimes the reason changes have to happen. Or because making them happen would be so hard, right? Because at the end of the day, you have to submit to Scripture, or we don't have the right to call ourselves a church, right? We're just playing games with God's name. and You don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. None of us want to do that, right? I hope not. But we do need to ask ourselves, how long can a church remain healthy if the reasons it won't change is because people don't want to lose their power? If that's the reason, if that's the reason the church can't change, it's unhealthy, right? But God will show the way. God will show the way for us. He will make the way plain. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. These are the people of God in Philippi. These are the recipients of all that Christ has purchased for them. These are Christians to whom he's writing. In verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my change and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of of Jesus Christ. To have Paul say that. Paul say that about a church. This is a good church. Paul loves this congregation. They are and have been a blessing to him since that first day with Lydia. He's talking about in verse 5. In the beginning fellowship with the praying women of Philippi, ten years ago, their hearts have been joined together. You see what Paul calls what they have in verse 5? It's not just like, hey, we met each other and we liked each other and we became friends and now we're friends for life. No, it's, it's not that. They're not just another affinity group in Philippi. Philippi has tons of those. They're not just another partnership for mutual financial or social gain. Philippi has plenty of that. You don't need another one of those. It's not merely another group of like-minded people that join together to achieve a common purpose. A purpose like preserving their own culture and values. Or even a common purpose like preserving the empire and the kingdom and values of Rome. Theirs is a fellowship in the gospel. In verse 6, it's the gospel that began the good work of saving them in them. And making them one and sending them out to proclaim it and make disciples. And it's Christ for them in this gospel that will finish the task he started and bring it to completion. Paul's hope that all will be well in Philippi isn't in the people there. That's not why Paul has confidence that everything will be fine. Because these are good people and they do good things And they'll accomplish what they need to accomplish. It's it's not that. That may be true, but that's not why Paul has joy and thanksgiving and hope and confidence. As much as he loves and values these people, he's not hopeful for their future because of them. Paul's hope that all will be well if he were to not be there. And what needs preserving would be preserved is the fact that it's Jesus who is at work there and not those people. That Jesus is responsible for this prayer being answered, not these people. They are the means through whom which God will achieve his purpose. But God tends to achieve his purposes through the means of people. Paul prays that would not be overridden. That the fact that it is Christ who is the source and reason of this church would not be overridden. Paul's confidence for their endurance and the faith they have is all in Christ. The one who started the work there initially. Isn't that amazing? Paul was the boots on the ground. And he says it was Jesus who began the work in Philippi. So the pastor's confidence in ministry. I thought this was, this was convicting to me in this study. The pastor's confidence in ministry that all will be well is in the fact that the Christ who started the work in the hearts of his flock will also finish it. The pastor, his job is to get the people rallied around the common goal of completion for the sake of Christ, for endurance and fellowship and all that for the sake of Christ, if a church is going to last and endure for God's reasons, with God's blessings rather than our own. Christ will be working on these believers each and every day He's always focused on the church. Always focused on His people. His sheep that He means to save and has saved. He'll be working on us, on them, every single day to bring their faith to completion. That's why we won't falter. That is why Paul can have joy for them even when he's separated from them and might be dying. How could you have Paul as basically your kind of pastor of pastors and lose him and be okay? right we could could listen imagine having not this as your pastor imagine the apostle paul being your pastor and he's gone tomorrow how in the world is it going to continue right these are the things on paul's mind not that he's not, i don't mean paul is arrogant paul knows their partnership is that deep that he has that relationship with them but he doesn't have to be there for them to be okay Jesus in the gospel does when they won't be okay. So he prays for them. In verse 7, he says that since they're all partakers of grace together, it's very right for him to feel so much affection for them. So he doesn't have so much affection for them because they've been his buddies for life. Which is a fine thing, but that's not why he has so much affection for them. He has this affection because they're all one in Christ for the sake of the gospel. They're like him. Paul was a different kind of guy. He had different priorities, a different way of living. And these people had a very close partnership with him. And he has deep and true affection for them. And it's good and right for us to feel a sense of belonging and friendship with one another based on the gospel. The gospel transcends earthly friendships. What the gospel is doing and wants to accomplish is bigger and it's more important. And that's hard to let go of. You feel like you're betraying your friends. If following Christ or following your friends becomes an actual decision, we have to make. And Paul says, you guys have never picked Philippi over me. right? You've never picked Philippi over me. And look at the fruit of that in his life. Man is coming to the end of his life as far as he knows. And he has to get a letter to them. When the fellowship we seek to have is gospel fellowship, fellowship based not just on what Jesus has done for each one of us, praise God for it, but for what Jesus has called each one of us to, that fellowship, when it's what binds us together, is deep and lasting and real. It's very easy, or not, it's very difficult to break a partnership like that. When they stayed partner with Paul while he was preaching the gospel that in many places was getting him persecuted. He's literally sitting in prison. And when they stayed with him as a partner in his proclamation in the defense of a gospel, the world found absolutely foolish and hated. A bond was being forged in those fires. That wasn't put together by anything in this world or for any reasons in this world. And one of the bummers of of church life as usual is that the bonds that are formed are usually formed over We stood alongside one another in trying to get past this difficult relational thing in the church. We love it. Look, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. We spend all our time in here fighting about who knows what in here. That's not what our fellowship is meant to come from. We've really been through the fire of keeping that person from destroying the church with gossip. Well, great. I mean, I'm glad we do that. But like that's that's not the cosmic reason we're here. If 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 the bishops and deacons, if, if the leaders in the church like Paul, if, if they're just constantly embattled by these little church fights, all the life is being sucked out of the church. That's that's not what we're to be contending for. That's not contending for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Right? That's contending for just not being miserable for everybody. And we have to do that, but like that's not why, we're, that's, we need to get beyond that, right? You want to get beyond that so that what you're, if you're going to bleed and die, let it be for the gospel. Don't let it be for the carpet or whatever, right? Paul says he has them in his heart. They're dear to him because of their fellowship with him in the gospel. Everything else, even self-preservation in Philippi, had been set aside. We see that in the passage. Their affection for their Philippian family was overridden by their affection for the gospel family, and this has knit their hearts together with such a bond of love that Paul never once forgot about these people. Verse 8 again. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This is His family. These are His people. What would make the man who said to live is Christ and to die is gain and mean it? What would make the man who was beaten almost literally to death, who got back up and walked into the city where the people that beat him were, what would make him speak of people in such a way? This is a deep bond they have to get that kind of bond with one another. Right? Real friendship real friendship I hate business friendship I hate it you know just you just oh, that's one of the frustrating things right about about pastoring is that there's just so many relationships that you had and then they're just gone right the pastors move on and churches move on and you just have this wake behind you of relationships that you once had that were everything and now they're just gone and you don't have them anymore. Usually because you went cross with each other over something you really didn't have to, you just did because neither one of you could be, you know, selfless enough to forgive or look over or let it go. So we just, we just have a wake behind us of just relationships that once were great and now they're not. And so it, it's, it's, it should be like this. Right, I mean, it should be like this. I mean, I don't imagine Paul was an easy guy to work for. Right, I mean, Mark had trouble with him, and I'm no Mark. Right, <laughs> most pastors today are no Mark, and Mark was like, you know, and then Paul's like, yeah, leave him here, and you have Barnabas in there. Do we really need to leave him here? Yes, we really need to leave him here. But I mean, they they had this relationship, this oneness, and and to see what. Paul's hard in that and what flows out of that. They never let personal things get in the way of their relationship with Paul. And neither did he. Paul chooses his friends very carefully for the sake of the gospel. And if people were willing to buy into his mission, they were friends for life. And that's where we really want to focus tonight here in the last part of this passage. Paul is going to take these next few verses here from 9 forward and define just exactly what he means by fellowship in the gospel. What is that? Because fellowship can become a very anemic word, right? A fellowship is like what you do sometimes as a dinner after church, and that's fine, not knocking that. That is fellowship, make no mistake. What I'm saying in our heads, it can become like that's what it is. This is a partnership, fellowship in the gospel. What is it based on? What does it look like? How does a group of people know over time in their church... That their fellowship is in the gospel. That that's really why they're together. Well, it goes on. It can't go on set. It can't be assumed. You assume it, you lose it. It can't be assumed. It can't be taken for granted. But how do we know over time that we're building on the rock and not building on sand? How do we know that what is holding us together and tightening the bond we have with one another are God's priorities and not our own? Why do we like each other? Why do we want to be together? Why do we want to be in this church? If the answers are all earthly and fleshly and man-made traditions, not that they're evil, but they're not biblical, right? They're just man-made traditions. Everybody has them. Our preferences. Are these the things that forge our fellowship? Then it's not gospel fellowship. Gospel fellowship is built on different things. It exists for different reasons. There are groups and organizations and kingdoms in the world that can last hundreds if not thousands of years that aren't based or built on the gospel or God's word at all. In fact, many of them are built clearly on Satan. Mormons have big churches and lots of them and lots of adherents and lots of members and they've been around since the 19th century. Does that mean they're blessed of God? Does that mean their fellowship is gospel fellowship? No. No. Time doesn't mean anything. Time means like the longer something lasts for ungodly reasons means that that's what it is. It just keeps going. Keeps going. Keeps going. That's not a sign of anything. The church in Philippi today is gone. Gone. All the churches in Revelation, gone. They don't exist anymore. Ephesus never got their first love back. Even Smyrna. Smyrna. Eventually didn't make it. Like we're a blip. But we're our blip. And these are our days in the Ohio Valley. Longevity and unity is not the sign of whether or not God is blessing something. The world under Satan pulls that off all the time. What does gospel fellowship build? What does the structure look like? Because building this is what Paul is praying for. That's what he's talking about. I want this fellowship to continue, he says. And in verse 9 he writes, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, gospel fellowship First and foremost is a fellowship genuinely characterized by Christian love. Not affinity for one another, although that is normally there, but it's not what it's built on. Christian love, the love of Christ for people. Love that, remember, is so different from what the world is that since Jesus loved Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus, he stayed four days longer in the place where he was. Love that will go there. right? Love that doesn't operate like love in the world. In the church, the gospel is what builds the fellowship. We have to be careful to build on the love that will end up producing that which is pleasing to God. Not necessarily what is most acceptable to us. This love abounds still more and more. In what? In affinity? In feelings? In mushiness? No, no, no. In knowledge and all discernment. This love won't ever compromise the priority of the gospel for the sake of our priorities. This love is love that knows when to say we aren't doing that. We aren't going there That's not who we are. We won't act like this. We will go this direction, which is God's direction. We won't go that direction. That is when Christian love has come to its full bloom. Knowledge and all discernment. As this kind of love grows, look at what happens. People are purified. Hearts are changed. Maturity results. Maturity results. Beloved, that contributes to rather than stifles the work of the gospel. When a church is so set in its ways that it would maintain them even if it meant not engaging for the sake of the gospel, its fellowship is worldly. It's become an affinity group that exists for the sake of itself. When its love goes no further than its own walls. Paul prays that their obvious and proven love for one another that they have there in Philippi like we have here in our church that's real and godly and has already benefited the work of the gospel for Paul, he prays that that love, they haven't arrived, right? Let it keep growing until it abounds, until it just overflows. Not as this giant free-for-all of emotional feelings, but in knowledge and discernment. It is that the church is on fire in all the right ways. Paul teaches us that when the love people have for one another is uniquely Christian, Its results are the things that are excellent in verse 10. As God would define excellent. Things that God would approve of and be glorified by. How do we know that we love God? How can we be sure that our love is glorified to Him? Beloved, what does our love do? Does it preserve our preferences? Does it preserve our traditions? Even if it means being unloving to people. Do we know we've preserved what God wants to preserve when the church looks exactly how we want it to? That would be strange. If, if we've come to the place in our minds where we equate what God wants with what we want, something's off. They may be the same, but often they won't be, right? We have to, we have to be able, as love abounds, it's there, Paul says, it's there. Like you're not deficient, unsaved, lukewarm people. It's there, he says. But I want it to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Right? If 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 the fellowship if, if the fellowship is maintained because everybody's happy that they, it, that they get what they want and then people can join and link arms together and work for that, I'll stick up for you if you stick up for me. And sometimes there are things worth standing up for. But like, to make sure it goes my way, that's not worth standing up for. We died to that. The me that said my way or the highway is dead in Christ. Right? And that, listen, that goes for the pastor too. Right? It's, it's gospel fellowship. That which scripture defines as excellent are those things which exclusively glorify Christ by abounding in the fruit of the gospel. More and mature disciples are how we know if our love is godly and biblical. How how big you are getting is irrelevant. Are the people maturing? If we end up surrounded by ourselves in a hall of mirrors, our love was nothing more than a clanging cymbal in 1 Corinthians 13. When we read verses 9 and 10 together, we find that biblical Christian love based on the gospel will result in the approval of what is excellent. Not necessarily what is preferable and desirable, but what is excellent. Love will lead to recognition of true doctrine. Yes, absolutely. Love for God and for neighbor with sincerity and purity, because this love doesn't exist to affirm us, but to fill us with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, beloved, God is not asking us to produce our own brand of what is righteous and good. We can't determine that. It may be very valuable to me. And there may be spiritual reasons and life reasons for the values I have and all these things, and that's fine. What the Scripture is saying is that in the church, if we're going to build fellowship, if we're going to have real love, the righteousness that is there needs to come from the outside in, by Christ, not for Christ, not with Christ, by Christ. And He tells us what that righteousness is in His Word. In His Word. We don't produce these things. Notice that. That's not what church is. We're filled by these things. We don't come to give. We come to sit under a waterfall and receive. And that water that flows into us from above pours out onto others. That water, not the water I create. If I'm not stretching that metaphor too far, right? The excellent things that are pleasing to God exist outside of us. And God brings them to bear on us. Notice that. They're by Jesus Christ. The church's fellowship doesn't exist. For the sake of preserving one another's contributions and preferences and individuality. No, no, and no. That's an affinity group. That's not gospel fellowship. Right? There are things worth preserving more important than the things that are important to us. That's what our houses are for. Right? Make your home the shrine of your preferences. Don't impose them on God's house. exist for the fruits of righteousness that come from Jesus Christ. So distinctly Christian love, the fellowship of the gospel listens and is shaped by Christ so that God is the one that receives all the glory and all the praise. Church is not with him, beloved. It's not that it's not the way it works. It's by him and through him and for him. The Holy Spirit was hard at work in this congregation. It must be for us. He must be for us. We don't do and ask God to show up and bless it, right? And like it and approve of it no matter how many people we've ignored or pushed away or walked on to get it. Like, like how, how do we get there? Lord, I want to give this offering to You. Let me make a mess of everything and make everybody miserable until I get my way and then accept my sacrifice. It's absurd that we do this. We want love to abound in knowledge and discernment so that we aren't like that. So that we know to check ourselves by the Spirit when we're in the flesh. Our goal is to be, Paul prays, sincere and without offense until the day of Christ in verse 10. Sincere and without offense. There's nothing that offends more as a general principle than sincerity. Right You can be very sincere in what you like or want and not even realize how offensive you're being, right? My son really likes superheroes. okay He's very sincere about me. i I try like but after like the fifth fifty seven minute story, I'm ready to bail. I'm ready. I'm like, buddy, I need a break. I love you so much. You mentioned that superhero again. I'm gonna lose my mind, right? So you you can have sincerity. Sincerity will breed. If I'm very sincere about the Buckeyes, if I was like that every Sunday, just harping on WVU football because Ohio State football is important to me, you know what? I'm very sincere. It's also very offensive, and not very pastoral, right? But you see, you understand my point, right? You Paul says I want sincerity without offense, meaning that what you're sincere about won't offend. Not not in the gospel fellowship. Now, beloved, we have to be sincere about doctrines that are absolutely offensive to the world, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about our fellowship in the gospel, our one-anotherness. We don't get sincere enough or so sincere that we miss the fact that our sincerity can't walk on other people, no matter how well-meaning it is. It's gospel fellowship. Let our sincerity be fueled by that which Jesus says is excellent for the church. We need to keep things as objective as possible, right? Just so we don't feel that. He prays four things for them in verses 8 through 11. I really am almost done. That their love abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment in verse 9. That they may come to approve the things that are excellent in verse 10a. That they may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ in verse 10b. And be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ for God's praise and glory in verse 11. Paul writes to a church that had all kinds of worldly reasons to have fellowship. To tell them the burden of his heart is that their fellowship would be fellowship based on the gospel and on God's will for his church. That they not forget who they are. This family, beloved, is a different kind of family. It's just a different kind of family. The world can build another organization that lasts for hundreds of years. And it will, and it is right now. Only God can create and sustain gospel fellowship. We have to pray together for this. I need you with me in praying for this. Like you need me with you in praying for this. I don't want to say no to myself. If what we have, we could have without Jesus, it isn't gospel fellowship. If our fellowship isn't supernatural, it's worldly. And listen, we were created new in Christ for much more and much better than what they can get down at the Eli Club. Right. I've never been there. I don't mean any offense by that. I this first club that pops in my head. I think it's elite. but I think people say Elite. I'm still working through that as a person. But the fellowship we have with one another must go beyond mere affection for one another. And that's pretty pleasant and wonderful, by the way. So it's not like it's evil. It's that we're created for more and for better. To Christ-like affection that overflows in knowledge and discernment so that we are productive together for the sake of the gospel, not just ourselves.